with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and that's it. There's no third person. It's like Peter, Paul, and. Yeah, well, they finally came for her. <laughs> and, and who's they this time? <laughs> um, Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus. Um, no, Aida is out sick this week, so it's just me and Louis, which is quite ironic because I am also not feeling well (laughs) strange i'm feeling better than ever i think i'm thriving off the Mm. angst you both are giving us this week yeah you know if we were recording in person i would have maybe also called in sick oh yeah Mm -hmm. who knows i'm hoping to sicken you further if you will it is beautiful to know though that as a person who is past my i'm like three weeks now past my vaccination when you start feeling ill or like you have a migraine or something, you know that it is not coronavirus. That is nice. Yes. Yeah. The suspense of will this take um, an unforeseen <laughs> turn is out of the picture. You can just be sick like a normal human being who watches Price is Right in the middle of the day. Yeah. Remember other illnesses? <laughs> what a good time. Totally. I think, Ira, I'll just spring my question on you that I now spring on everybody I meet because I'm now, you know, occasionally meeting new people. And if the conversation comes to a halt, I'm just curious, what is everybody's one favorite song? Like you can, And the reason I ask this is people are always like, well, I think I would probably pick something like Fleetwood Mac. I don't want a song area. I want your one <laughs> favorite song. You have to pick one. All the other songs go away. And I think it's sort of a telling and cool answer. So what is your one favorite song? Um, Usher's You Don't Have to Call. What an, a shocking answer. And also my favorite Usher song. Because we, 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 I feel like we end up having weird bonds over strange favorite songs of artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is yet another case of that. What a, what a fun, funky pop song. Yeah. I, like, sometimes there's hyperbole. Um, when people rate internet posts, but um, Damon Young of the website Very Smart Brothers, who has been on Keep It Before with us, um, had a post on the site that was like, you don't have to call is maybe the best song ever made. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to agree with this because it's my favorite song. It is a wonderful song. Mine is, of course, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, which... Feels like sacrilege for a couple of reasons. One, it's a James Bond movie. And agro-masculinity, as you know, doesn't really dovetail with my brand. But secondly, <laughs> um, it's the one Carly Simon hit that wasn't written by Carly Simon. It was written by Carol Bayer Sager and Marvin Hamlish. And I feel like I'm betraying the songwriterly spirit of Carly Simon. But my God, Tom York so right when he called it the sexiest song ever. Well, if Tom York thinks it's sexy. <laughs> that fuckable beast, Tom York. Him and his... A uh, weird swaying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sort of makes noises like um, a demon you find in your attic. You know, like, oh, is there a, a droning going on somewhere in the house? <laughs> Tom York is definitely an Ari Aster project. Yeah. <laughs> I will go on the record as saying that. 
But I do love that man. I saw him live once in, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, that I've seen, I saw, the only time I've seen Radiohead was in Iceland. Oh. Like, like front row. It was at this weird music festival um, where I also saw Sister Sledge, and it just come from seeing a performance in a volcano. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. You sound yeah. like you're either 25,000 years in the past or the future. Um, <laughs> Sister Sledge, by the way, people obviously know Sister Sledge because mm-hmm. of We Are Family. But the best Sister Sledge song is Fill in the Blank. Go. I don't know. He's the Greatest Dancer, uh, um, which is what's sampled in Getting Jiggy With It. Oh, that song. Okay, well, there mm-hmm. we go. You always have a random like favorite song for like an artist. Well, I'm a good person, right? <laughs> uh, th- it was just very surreal to see like a bunch of like. Icelanders sing along to We Are Family. Wow, yeah. Did they were there lots of like sons and daughters slid into the lyrics? You know? Yeah, you know, and then they murdered a bunch of people afterwards. You know. Iceland. Right. No. That's well. how it goes there, right. Murder yeah. or be murdered by otters or whatever's happening up there. <laughs> um, well, this episode, I'm hoping it's not as out of control as normal episodes that just have us in them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We do end up talking about like lost cast members from all that and stuff, generally, when it's just you and me. And then we get comments that they needed something to ground them. Honey, this is me grounded. Like, I'm talking about <laughs> 1995 kid stars. I'm, I, I'm being myself. <laughs> well, I'm going to be myself today and make Lewis endure a conversation about the Real Housewives. Oh, my God. Pray for me. Because, believe it or not, the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City became national news no <laughs> over the past week i i have to say i'm i'm on a text chain of people who try to mute every housewife's name on twitter because it's just such an insular community like if you don't watch the shows you don't have any traction for what all these stories are talking about so i'm excited to learn why this one was so um michaela salahi level if you will <laughs> another national crime right. committed on the real housewives uh and we'll get into that when we talk about uh jen shaw and her arrest but we're also going to talk a bit about um getting back to normal once this pandemic ends the things that we're excited for and um we will also be joined by hanif Adurakib to talk about his new book, A Little Devil in America. Poems, poetry, these are things we still need. Yeah. Pay attention. So, we will be right back. Our merch, Es Grande. Ira may have been banned from Twitter, but they can't stop La Revolution. We just created a I'll drop my nudes if Texas goes blue t-shirt in the Crooked store. So check it out and get yours on crooked.com slash store. And be sure to tag Ira on Instagram because he can't see your tweets. The Senate gets back from recess next week, and we want to make sure they're hearing from every supporter about why passing the For the People Act needs to be their top priority. This week, activists are hosting a For the People Week of Action, including virtual advocacy visits with senators and democracy teach-ins, where you can learn more about issues like gerrymandering, voter suppression, and how to get big money out of politics. To find out ways you can take action today, head over to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people. Okay, so 
we're slowly sliding back into the real world. Allegedly, right. Yes. Uh, and I sort of wanted to know like what things we're excited for, um, what things we're still anxious about, you know, sort of being back to. I will say that this weekend, I went to the movies for the first time in a year. Uh, to see Godzilla v. Kong, which is not a divorce yes. drama, as, I, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, yes, I saw Godzilla versus Kong, and it was everything I needed. I mean, it does strike me as just dumb enough. You know, like, the, you just want to be glued to something, one, mindless, two, shockingly uh, uh, visual, mm-hmm. and... That's not Instagram. That's not just something you hold in your hand. Um, yeah. I did watch the movie, but I watched it at home. Mm-hmm. And I've got to tell you, it struck me as less gripping in that format when I could just walk around and also just leave the room at times yeah. to be away from the movie. Yeah. I will say that one of the pluses of seeing it in person is that I did not do that at all. I, I went to see it with um, two friends, and they even got up at one point to just to like, run to the restroom right and i didn't even have to take a restroom break during the movie and i was like that changed everything for me oh yeah even movies that are amazing like you know nomadland like who i would love to win the oscar this year um i definitely check my phone during that movie while watching it at home even just to respond to a text right uh if yeah. you get one and this is the first movie in a year that i truly did not look at any other screen besides the movie screen. Right. No, I mean, movies are supposed to be immersive. You're supposed to just be absorbed by the thing. You bring up Nomadland. That's a movie that has a ton of visual splendor. You're absorbed in the unpredictability of certain characters. And so to have your phone next to you just takes away from what what is supposed to be um, a psychologically demanding movie, I think, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Marty Scorsese is right. Oh, my. Yep. <laughs> I'm about ready to be a boomer, actually. Just throw me up there. I don't care. Um, I read a piece this weekend by one of my favorite writers, Dave Holmes, who you knew Mm -hmm. to Ira, former MTV VJ, who also just knows everything, writes routinely for Esquire. Does he know who was awful to Sujin? Oh, right. I bet he has the, uh, the tea on that. Um, he is definitely sick of being asked about Jesse Camp, though, so I will not. (laughs) Um, he wrote a piece called We're in the Wheel of Fortune stage of the pandemic. Just embrace mm. it. And it's about how, why is Wheel of Fortune the ultimate comfort TV show right now? Now, I'll be honest. I'm, uh, you know, I have a dog in this race because I'm obsessed with game shows and particularly Wheel of Fortune and particularly the rise of Vanna White, who did get mm. to host the show for about 13 minutes before they took it away from her. Um, and he's just talking about how you just want something that is pleasing to the eye, just demanding enough as in you pay attention to a puzzle for a couple of seconds, the puzzle goes away, and you don't have to think about it later. You will not even remember the puzzle six minutes from now. And I think Godzilla versus Kong is the same thing. Like I was somewhat absorbed in the technology of destroying Godzilla that they Mm -hmm. talked about that Rebecca Hall kept introducing to me, and Mm -hmm. then it really went away the second after the movie ended. Yes. No, I mean, it is truly the Trinity, the Tuck meme from um, RuPaul's Drag Race (laughs) of, uh, I don't know what she's saying, but girl, I am living. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, is is not Rebecca Hall the craziest choice for an actor in this movie? She's so cerebral stoic and yeah stoic yeah so like concerned seeming like i don't Mm -hmm. did you see jessica beale in the center that kind of like presence yeah Um, such an austere presence for a movie that is like so 
much, you know? Like, yeah. Brian Tyree Henry, on the other hand, like, is sort of like a bombastic actor, you know, and like leans into comedy very well. So it made sense for him to be in this movie, you know? Yes. Like he was having fun. Uh, Rebecca, I was like, girl, what, what are you doing? No, it's, it's like if Liv <laughs> Ullman were in the movie or something. Like I should be watching you sit by a window and cry as opposed to reciting dialogue <laughs> where the entire line is Godzilla, you know? <laughs> but she did give 200%. I was absorbed. I yeah. thought she played it well. It was yeah. just... I, I mean, I think of her as somebody in movies like Christine, which a couple of years ago, if you guys didn't see Christine, it's about a local Florida newscaster from the 70s named Christine Shubik who pulled out a gun and killed herself on air in footage that exists somewhere but that no one has really seen. Rebecca Hall is the perfect person to play these understated but really mm. disturbed characters. And so nothing you know, about this movie is understated and nothing about the characters is anything, let alone disturbed. Mm. I have not seen that. I was hoping that you were going to say Rebecca Hall um, portrayed the killer car in a reboot of Stephen King's Christine. Oh, <laughs> okay. I want to see that. Sure. <laughs> I think she could do that. We did get a Christine movie years and years and years and years ago, right? No one talks about. I mean, it's like it or something. We we yeah. need the I think, uh, I the two point version. I don't even know if it. Yeah, I don't even know if it happened. I think they were developing one. Mm. I would love to see a new Christine. Very good movie. That should be updated because it's a little hokey. You mean you mean the Stephen King book? The Stephen King book, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Also, by the way, we get Alexander Skarsgård in this movie, who I kind of feel like, based on Big Little Lies, you really need to give him some dramatic stakes to have any personality at all. I say this as a general fan of his, mm -hmm. but like in this movie, he really is just there. scientist number four or whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's really just there. I mean, even the dramatic stakes of True Blood, where he's talking about fairies and vampires and yelling at Bill Compton and, you know, having to say the name Sookie Stackhouse <laughs> out loud. <laughs> Give him more of a personality. Uh, or maybe mm -hmm. he just needs to not be wearing any clothes. I, he is just shocking looking. Like, almost everybody on True Blood. Like, yeah. Brian Quantin, I don't know what mathematician put him together, yeah. but my not God. Not to sound like The it, angles uh, worked out. <laughs> Not to sound like a um, de moi post, but when mm -hmm. I worked at MTV, oddly enough, I worked at MTV with um, Hanif, um, who we'll be talking to later. Um, when I worked at MTV, we did the MTV Movie Awards one year, and um, one of my favorite celebrity encounters was I was at the bar um, trying to get a drink after the show, and the bartender skipped over me, um, of course, to try and go to Skarsgård, who was right behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this was his Tarzan era. Sure. Uh, remember that happening? <laughs> uh, he's a little tall for Tarzan. Uh, always confused right. me. But he said, no, he was first. Oh. And asked me what I wanted to drink and then got it for me, which is such a very simple thing. But, you know, when a tall Memorable. Scandinavian does that for you it means something you say skull to him That's right. <laughs> um uh the opposite happened to me with our our keep it friend zachary quinto when i first moved to la i was in line at akbar and he accidentally shoved me and i said did you just shove me and i scared him so oh <laughs> <laughs> now everybody knows i wanted to bring it up the entire time we interviewed him and i was like this probably isn't prudent you should have he's i think he's also one of the last people i had dinner with before the pandemic oh god right dinners remember that at a dead restaurant ma'am sir 
which closed. Oh, brutal. I that's yeah. something I miss coming yes. up. Uh, I I will I will like a, a a restaurant visit with seven people where mm-hmm. I also move around freely and say hi to somebody at another table and we hug and I tell them, you know, gossip they didn't know and they mm. add to my gossip and then I bring it back to the table. Okay. Well, so as I'm talking about things sliding back to normal, I have done that. Not seven person. Um, but you know, some of our mutual friends had our first indoor dining experience um, after we were two weeks past uh, our second vaccine shot. We had it at Damien uh, in downtown LA, which was great. And it was still sort of surreal because it was like indoor dining was open at a small capacity, right? Which means that it was us and one other table. <laughs> and oh, everyone else was still yeah. outdoor dining, you know? So it's still that. I always think what's so funny about these dining experiences where every table is super separated and people aren't moving around and there's lots of space is that it looks like a restaurant in a play. Yeah. Where there's like, (laughs) am I watching the Iceman cometh? What is, you know, (laughs) everyone is just standing apart. So, so I can see everybody. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, no, the, the surreal experience though was, um, like a few days ago I had dinner at, um, the San Vicente bungalows in West Hollywood and I had dinner with a friend and it was the, one of the first times where other people were being guided to their table, right? But you recognize them and you said hi to them. Mm. And just that experience was so weird to have that again. You know, the thing of other people that you know are also having dinner at this place this evening. I will say though that the only time I started to feel any anxiety was um, they had everyone waiting to like get in to check in and you know like take people's temperatures you know and like um do all the like contract tracing or whatever and um i was like are we really going to be going back to shoving people into a small corridor waiting in line to get into somewhere again uh and we definitely will right you know a lot of people you sort of have that anxiety of like oh i don't want to go back to that and it's like are we really going to be doing stuff like that again like you watch concerts and you're like oh remember when we were all packed in like sardines so they could sell enough tickets um and it's like we will definitely be going back to that because capitalism does not die no right something will be bracing (laughs) about redoing the heavily peopled things we once did but then also it's so easy to get used to anything like i always am thinking about how i remember how strange it felt to put on a mask the first three times Mm -hmm. i'm like oh is here here we are brave new world or whatever you know stupid analogies we came up with at the time and then you do it four (laughs) times and you're not even thinking about it anymore so yeah absolutely and it's like yeah you could feel uncomfortable with that but like we talked about Akbar, right? Like, how many times did we normalize the fact that you arrive there? It's so packed, you cannot move, but you have to get to the bar and get to the back couch where your friends are. So you were just squeezing through people. Oh God! And God help you if you have to get a second drink for somebody else too, <laughs> and you're doing you're doing like Marx Brothers comedy, like holding two drinks as you maneuver through the most packed space on earth. Uh, yeah. So not exactly looking forward to that. Um, but it'll be fine. I would say that a lot of the places that we did visit that used to be so packed like that, I would hope that they could embrace some of the outdoor stuff that they were doing during the pandemic. Definitely. We need more outdoor spaces. Mm. Uh, the ones that look cute though, you know, I, I don't need to be doing any more dining next to a trash can. Uh, that is tough. In the street. And also L.A. is just, <laughs> I, I, what's strange is every time I go to San Francisco, I feel like in the middle of a Saturday or a Sunday, I you can find some 
particularly rad patio space mm-hmm. or uh, culture that is like an all-day drinking festivity, generally speaking. I feel like L.A. is weirdly has historically been behind in that way. Like there are kind of straight-ish hotel locations that give you that, but mm-hmm. not really a gay universe for that. So hopefully that emerges. I also, we brought up concerts. Of course I am. I, I was never really a live music person before, and I feel like I will overcompensate wildly and become you one. should. Uh, once it becomes available to us, yeah. Yeah, you know, you can see... Um... Once Charles Puth drops that damn album, are we getting it or not, Chuck? <laughs> I think it's covered. I watched him in concert last week. He did some... Um... Live he did like thing. a Dua Lipa thing, right? Where it's live. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish I had seen it. I missed well, it. Well, it was at the Nokia, and he wasn't feeling that well, so he was like drinking tea during it. So it was, it was, very, it was, very, it was very casual, mm. very easy listening mm. <laughs> version Which is kind of, of adjacent Puth. to who he is anyway. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, was, it was fun Soothing. seeing that, and like two weeks earlier, Charlie XCX had done one too, and that was so like fun and vibrant. And I was like, damn, I can't wait to go to a concert. And dance again, and we'll talk about dancing with Hanif again. Um, it was such a good book to read, reminding me of like the things that I missed a lot uh, about interacting with other people and listening to music and stuff. Um, I do want to lastly go circle back to Godzilla versus Kong. Um, Thank God, because I do want to tell people that like, yeah, it's one of those movies where it's like it's it's flashy and it's insane. And in any other year, you would see that and you might like forget most things about it. Um, but I think by the nature of it being like the first movie see- I've seen back, so much of it's going to be ingrained into my brain. So I definitely recommend people see it. I mean, you have not lived until you've seen a rocket ship used as a defibrillator machine. Oh, right. On King Kong. One thing I will say about the behavior <laughs> of Godzilla and King Kong is I don't like when they act like Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> I don't like seeing King Kong like bounce off a building or like or kind of choke slam Godzilla into another building. Like, bitch, this isn't kickboxing. <laughs> they don't have sophisticated <laughs> judo techniques. What's <laughs> happening here? Two things I also have realized is one, I was always Team Kong because I think King Kong is a barb. Oh, right. Well, I mean, if you believe Nikki, he Miss, is. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Well, I mean. This is King Kong. Yes, Miss King Kong. Uh, and now I really want a film, Miss King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> is she trying to break the glass ceiling in the workplace or is she behaving like King Kong? Right, because wasn't there like a Miss Kong video game? Oh, God, I don't know. Well, there's Miss Pac-Man, obviously. There's Miss Pac-Man. Maybe there was a Miss Kong, too. You know, I feel like she had to have like a dainty hat. Or maybe I'm just thinking of like the episodes where McGilla Gorilla cross dressed. <laughs> he was ravishing. Yes. We also still, by the way, speaking of King Kong, do need the proper Chun Li movie and not the one starring Kristen Kreuk and Chris Klein from 15 years ago, where Ugh. your hands are clasped over your mouth. You can't believe what's occurring in front of you. <laughs> yeah, like a good a good Street Fighter reboot because the the Mortal Kombat one that was coming up. Does not look good. I will be watching it, but definitely will be watching it. I am worried. It's it to me. It has the kind of feel of the Mulan trailer, which is you really can make an amazing trailer for this movie, and then the movie's gonna suck. That's my mm, guess. Yeah. My other thing about King Kong is that I will lastly say is um I tried to like make a joke about like uh, King Kong is like um race before about him being black and then i realized that he is truly ethnically ambiguous 
because Skull oh, Island beautiful. is Skull Island is like smack dab in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So it's like surrounded by Africa, Asia, and Australia. Right. I don't know what race this monkey is. <laughs> First of all, I didn't realize you were Lynn Thigpen on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> Zeroing in on his coordinates for me. Um, Gumshoes, we've located <laughs> King Kong. <laughs> now, that's a woman who could wear red and yellow. Tina Burner, take notes. <laughs> Using Lynn Thigpen to drag Tina Burner. <laughs> what did we think of Millie Bobby Brown in this movie? Strange choice for her. You know what? She was turned. Yes. <laughs> she was she was turned up. And I think she was so excited to be in a um complex sci-fi plot where she actually got to do something besides stare at people and have migraines. Yeah, right. Because she truly does nothing in Stranger Things. And she spouted all the big technology jargon that this movie had to offer too. Yeah. So that's probably fun. I do want to say that. <laughs> Movies need to figure out what podcasting is. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, In this th- movie, there's a whole podcasting subplot, basically. Yeah, like a conspiracy subplot. And I'm just sort of like, what is this? It's like a radio show, yeah. <laughs> basically. It's not really a podcast. And it's, um, I don't know. I'm like, are we going to start feeling like how... um architects felt in the late 90s oh right they're like I, i'm not dating julia roberts today or what or, <laughs> or cartoonists felt whenever they would see caroline just hanging around in the city <laughs> that, still i think our only tv show about a cartoonist it was brave of us and and brave of leah thompson to go there but well um we, we need a second upping well other than Mark Kistler's Imagination Station. Oh, where you learned how to draw? Yeah. Do you remember that show? Very vaguely. I forget, obviously, this, the entire nostalgia for drawing on TV culture has centered around Bob Ross, mm. RIP Utica Queen. There was a whole industry of those people. Yeah. Mark Kistler was truly like my god in the mid-90s. And when I tell you that I made my grandmother pay for like a class where we went like during a Saturday and learned how to draw from Mark Kistler. Uh, and it was maybe the highlight of like my, my year as a kid. I remember being nine and wanting to draw. And what did I want to draw? Cool teenage girls, which is the <laughs> ultimate gay dream. Same, same. I definitely had like fake comic books that I drew. Uh, not fake comic books. I guess they were real that I would draw in school, um, like middle school, definitely. But they were all like hot, busty yeah. <laughs> women because that's what they all looked like in comics in the 2000s right like yeah. in the 2000s all women superheroes had um breasts that were larger than their head sometimes i will play <laughs> um old tomb raider and i'm like they just let this happen huh she's just <laughs> the most unbelievably voluptuous person who ever lived <laughs> like this how are you is grappling off cliffs how yeah. are you climbing into this aztec hideout when your breasts will not fit through the doorway right this woman is beating up a siberian tiger with pistols and i'm concerned about her safety yeah Yeah, let's not even get in the witchblade no please don't (laughs) all right when we're back we'll be joined by hanif aduraki keep it is brought to you by hinge hinge is the dating app designed 
to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. (laughs) You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Our guest today is a poet, critic, podcaster, and former co-worker of mine. His most recent book, A Little Devil in America, in praise of black performance, just hit shelves to universal praise, including praise from me, which is what counts the most. So please welcome Hanif Adurakib. Hanif, thank you for being here. Finally. Finally, I truly feel like you are actually a guest that I feel like um, Keep It listeners are constantly DMing, being like, when is Hanif coming on Keep It? Really? That's so kind of them. Yeah. And it's so good to be here. You know what's funny, Ira, is I was talking recently in an interview about the MTV News era because someone's like, well, how did you kind of like learn? Where did you learn to write so efficiently, so clearly at such a high rate? I was like, oh, it's because I worked in that like that MTV News era was a bit of an incubator for me because Mm. I didn't feel competitive, obviously, but it was also a thing where like I had to write something every week. And I, at the same time, I had to like make sure I wasn't getting like eaten up by like you or Doreen or Molly. You know, it was like, I got to <laughs> make sure that I'm, I'm filing like actually very good work because everyone around me is filing very good work. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we have moved past it. Let me be clear. I'm glad that we have evolved past <laughs> the TV news era. But that was a really vital, vital, uh, vital moment for me. It was like school for me. I was going to say, I was wondering how many other forms of writing can contribute to one person being good at writing poetry. But I guess if you're writing journalism, like you do have to be obviously selective about the words you use, but also the efficiency of language must help you to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think that coming up, I didn't start writing poetry until like 2011 or 2012. And I did it because in my early music critic days where like I was writing album reviews for local papers, Editors would always complain about my work being, quote unquote, too poetic or too meandering. And I never looked at that as a flaw. Like, I never thought I have to stop writing the way I'm writing. I looked at it as an opportunity and and thought instead, I have to learn how to master what I'm doing Mm -hmm. so that I can do it with a little more clarity. Uh, It felt like a real opportunity to, to, to find a learning curve for myself and not be like, okay, well, time to change up my entire writing voice. And um, it's worked out okay. So shout out to those editors too. And I don't mean that sarcastically, but like, 
it was it was important to be like I, I, to have someone say, I think I see what you're trying to do, but you perhaps need to get better at what you're trying to do. Yeah, I'm actually truly grateful for that MTV experience that we did have, because like you said, you know, we were working with like, you know, Doreen St. Felix, who every time I read something of hers, you know, I'm sort of like, what am I doing? Throw my hands up in the air. Yeah. Uh, and your work was always great, too, you know, and it was um this thing of like the weekly turnout of having to write something, but also like, I feel like they sort of like wanted us to like to be elevated there. So you could just like write something like you would do for like other websites, you know, you were yeah. like, this has to say something at the end of it. And I think that really helped with just sort of like getting you to really think about a piece of pop culture um, that you think is interesting or has been stuck in your head, find a way to make it personal and then find a way to convey that to people. And I've always found that um, your work really does that beautifully, particularly in this new book. Thank you. This was the first book that I've written that I've actually felt good writing. You know, I felt for so many of my other books, I felt like I suffered through them in a way or felt like it was difficult to write them. And then the book coming out was this grand emotional reward for all the suffering. You know, halfway through this book, I was as such a, you know, I would get up, I would run, I would face the day and feel so excited and then sit down and write and feel excited. And, and I was telling one of my friends this, I was like, you know, it's different this time. Like I'm, I feel energized when I write this book. I feel good when I pick it up and I feel good when I put the work down. And they were, they told me, you know, like, that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> you know, if you're fortunate enough, that's what, but it's, it's like being in a relationship and I, I'm not disparaging my other books, of course, love them. And without those books, I wouldn't have arrived at this one. But it is kind of like being in a relationship where you think it's good because you've been in only exhausting relationships. Mm -hmm. And then you find a relationship that's actually good. And you're like, oh, shit, this is what it could be like the whole time. It could be like this. That's what A Little Devil in America was for me. I'm interested in that because in this book, you know, you intersperse stories, you know, of um, black performance and like you know talking about um dance and you know be you um juxtapose it a lot with talking about um your mother's death um yeah. and you i would say that one of your um best essays uh, and maybe this is because i'm also a midwestern kid who likes emo music um <laughs> is your fallout boy one uh and they can't kill us till they kill us um the definitive i think essay on fallout boy which is stressing me out in case i ever have to write about them but um you wrote about losing um a close friend of yours in that essay um and so i want to know like what was it about this book and this process that felt more comfortable, you know, made you happier writing it, even though you were still writing about something um, that is, you know, I assume a painful memory? Yeah, it's funny that, that a few people have been like, I think this is a definitive fallout boy essay. And I appreciate that compliment. But I also think there just aren't, it's like, there's like three fallout boy essays. And so I'm not. That is fair. <laughs> I'm not really competing with much. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I'll take that. I'll Joan Diddy, I didn't get around to that. Yeah, yeah. not yet. <laughs> yeah. So I'll take that trophy while I got it. But I, I imagine in like a couple of years, it will, that will be easily dethroned by. Um, but, you know, like, I think, I think I've realigned my understanding of grief again, which is something that happens for me every couple of years. Thankfully, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that grief is something that I can only approach through a lens of, of pain and of, of misery or of feeling like I have lost something or something has been extracted from me when I have to also know that grief 
is generous. And grief is a fundamental way that I get to something better. Any chance I have to bring someone I love back to life on the page mm. feels in line with the celebratory nature of a book that is about celebration. Uh, be it my mother, or be it Josephine Baker or uh, Meredith Hunter, Ellen Armstrong, or, or any of these people who I kind of charted through in this book, you know, it was, it was all in efforts to celebrate their living and not just mourn their, the lack of presence, that physical presence that they have in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things about this book is in evaluating Black performance. You talk a lot about Soul Train, where Soul Train. I feel I feel like every once in a while we get a new viral clip of Soul Train. Either it's Rosie Perez or Jody Watley or somebody who's you know just spellbinding to watch dance. But there's there's just something so amazing about this show. First of all, it was appointment viewing Absolutely. for a lot of the country. Like everybody watched it every week. There's a clip of Aretha Franklin talking when she finally got on the show. She goes, "No, we watch this show every weekend." You can tell Don Cornelius is elated. But what did you get from watching? all this old footage again. I imagine that was so um, rad. It's funny because this story is kind of, every book I feel like I put out has like a narrative or a central story that comes along with it. And this book has become the the hard drive book. Uh, I got early in the process of writing this book, I got a hard drive of every Soul Train episode from 1971 to 1989. Mm. I have to be clear and say, because Questlove also had a similar Soul Train hard drive, and I believe he lost it. This is a different hard drive. Uh, at least I <laughs> you hope did not it. steal I did his. not steal Questlove. <laughs> but I, I, did, I did get a hard drive, and I also like, cannot talk about how I got it, but I got it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, I used to watch Soul Train reruns coming up when I was a kid. They would play them on WGN out of Chicago, which we got in Columbus on Sundays. And the thing about that was captivating, of course, but you're kind of in between two worlds, right? If I'm watching a Soul Train episode that originally aired in 1975, but I'm watching it in 1996, the minute commercials come on, I'm kind of snapped back to my real world, which is fine, Mm -hmm. but a little bit dislocating. For this hard drive, it came with the actual commercials that ran. Oh, wow. right? And so I got all those Johnson product commercials, the like Frederick Douglass <laughs> Afro Sheen commercial, you know, which is just Ugh. like an incredible monument. And it made me feel like I was really just seeped in the world of Soul Train in the time it was happening. And um, mm. one thing that's also fascinating is my first time through, and I didn't watch every episode, but I watched most of them and I did it in a linear fashion because I was fascinated by the tonal shift and the emotional shift and the style shift. And you got this kind of interesting archive of black fashion, of black hair, of black dance, of black politics that just kind of maneuvered through the seventies and into the eighties. And and to watch that evolution made me feel so in awe of my people and what my people are capable of and um, how my people have sustained and innovated through, through decades and having it kind of controlled and combined in the, in the container of Soul Train, which is an immensely freeing experience for a lot of these folks, it was just beautiful to watch. And that, that's kind of what got me to the next phase of the book, too, to say, like, I, I think I want to write a book about celebration and purely about celebration. I don't really want to spin my tires in anything that's not that. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I listened to um, your interview with um, Sam Sanders. Uh, and, you know, I, you talked a bit about how, you know, you had initially wanted to write something, you know, that was sort of like more connected to appropriation, you know, and like talking about blackface, like in some of that too. And it was, um, I really love that you just focused on celebrating, you know, black performers and the, like the feel of dancing, you know, it's yeah. like, I sent my roommate Royce, like, uh, I told him you have to read this book. And I like, it was like, as I was starting it and it was just like, um, he's a person who, you know, sort of like really, I feel like we connected 
as friends like on a dance floor because you when you connect with people who sort of like let music take over their body mm-hmm. and it's like that's you know that's how they connect with like artists and like their life you know and like the way that you just wrote about it in the beginning it's sort of like how you imagine romance friends or lovers in praise of all your body can and cannot do it was nice as the pandemic is ending to hear just this beautiful writing about something that I think we've all missed yeah. so much um, over the past year. Yeah. And it's the thing about, so I have a, I play with a crystal while I talk often and I'm afraid that I'm going to like, sorry to be pointing it aggressively at the screen. Um, <laughs> oh, there are always crystals off screen when I'm doing anything. I just don't bring them on to drive Lewis crazy. <laughs> Wait, are, Lu- are you not into crystals, Lewis? Is that a thing? Are you offended by the? Pr- I'll, I'll set it down. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly elated that you have a crystal. Uh, uh, yeah. No, don't worry about me. <laughs> what is the crystal? I won't get too deep into the crystal conversation, <laughs> but I have pyrite. Mm-hmm. I have some black tourmaline. Uh, I have mm. too many crystals. I'm like a crystals person now. Yeah. I have that and obsidian. Well, also like geology is cool. I don't mean to discredit geology and the wonders <laughs> of the earth. My God, yes. yes. But I never thought I'd become a, a crystals person. I think I like crossed over into being a crystals person like two years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm still not really, in a, I mean, I write about this in the book. I'm still not fully an astrology person, but I am someone who is fascinated by the inner workings of astrology as told to me by the people I love. Mm-hmm. But I still don't, like, I don't really know what it all means. I just kind of act like I do. I hope my friends don't listen to this. And realize that I'm just, I'm just like smiling and nodding. No, I get it. I've slid. I feel like everyone sort of around our age too has been like either you were really into it uh, as you were growing up or you've been like slowly sliding into it. And yeah. I slowly slid into like, you know, like my black obsidians around my wrist, you know, and like I have my like getting more into astrology. It's an all encompassing thing to take in. And I feel like we already know a lot about pop culture and other things. Right. You know? So to take that on is a task. Right. There's an initiation process called Los Angeles. And <laughs> you, have, you fall into it or you resist. Yeah. I think maybe this is why LA is like not for me, though I love it. I love it in short bursts. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I sidetracked this. I apologize. Oh, it's all good. We only sidetrack on this show. I know. I'm a, like, that's the thing. So I listen. I'm a listener. Long time listener, first time guest. Uh, but, but I was like, I feel like this is a place where I get sidetracked where like when I do stuff, this isn't disparaging the the UK, obviously, but I feel like when I do, you know, the book is coming out in the UK, like now-ish, and I have to do a lot of mm-hmm. UK press. And then, you know, if I'm ever on like the BBC, I cannot sidetrack. They're like, okay, enough. Enough <laughs> about, <laughs> we are here for a reason. Uh, so I, I love being able to kind of, you know, have, have a lot of uh, meandering here. Mm-hmm. Um, another performer you revisit in the book to really exciting detail is Josephine Baker. Mm. And yeah. for, first of all, she is somebody like, Albert Einstein, where where is the definitive biopic? Like this is disturbing to me. Yeah. Like she's like for a certain part of the 20th century, she is like the performer. So it really bothers me. I mean, there's but, one, what, but it's not great. There's um, with all respect to like Lynn Whitfield, who I believe played her. It's right. not a great mm-hmm. biopic. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. So, yes. Tell me about watching footage of her because as far as I'm concerned, there's still not a comparable performer who did exactly that. Yeah. So the thing about Justine Baker that's so fascinating to me that I did not come to terms with until I finished the book and went back through my research archives, is that online, largely on YouTube, you can watch video of Josephine Baker performing through five different decades. Mm. You know, there's stuff from 1925, and there's stuff near the end of her life in the 70s. One thing I want to say about Josephine Baker is more than just like performer, singer, she was an athlete. She was athletic. I mean, the things she was doing on stage can only be described to me as athletic. The cover of Little Devil in America was going to be a photo of Josephine Baker. Mm. Uh, I found a pretty rare photo of her 
like extended very high in the air with her arms out and her head up. And it, for me, it was just a feat of athleticism. I eventually kind of had some complications around using her on the cover in that way, especially with her face being obscured. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also though am someone who is so fascinated by Josephine Baker's later life. Mm -hmm. I'm often let down by how little there is written generously about her later life, which begins with me, you know, thinking about her work, not only the French resistance as a spy, but her coming back to the States to give a speech at the March on Washington, which um, I think is a part of her narrative that sometimes gets lost because I think the March on Washington has been reformatted through history as being this very like male centered Mm -hmm. space, which I mean, it was not a lot of, I mean, Justine Baker was, I think one of one or two women who spoke at it, but they have been kind of erased from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Josephine Baker's short speech at the March on Washington is captivating. It's funny. It's rageful. It's triumphant. And I, I love it. It's one of my favorite things. And I kind of wanted to honor this part of her late life that for me reverberates more than her early life. That's so beautiful to hear because I was actually thinking recently that I feel like the narrative for so many of our black artists um, involves, you know, a sort of like iconic period where they're here in America when they start out, right? And then because of the era that they came up in, they get the fuck out of America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they have like an expat period. And then so many of them sort of do a return, like Josephine Baker or like James Baldwin. We know so much about his expat period, but then like, there's a period where he was compelled to come back to America, you know? And I think we know less about so many of our black icons returns to America. Um, And it's so interesting to, you know, to dive into that for Josephine Baker. And I feel like we should be, hope we can do that for more people that we love. Yeah. And like Josephine Baker, you know, she returned to America and was still unimpressed and disappointed by it, which I think that Mm -hmm. very Tina Turner. Very, yeah, 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 right? <laughs> she was like, I left, I came back, and this place is still on the same shit. So, you know, <laughs> turns out I'm going to leave again. Yeah. You know, part of that essay is just being so amazed by detachment to place because I'm someone who, through a lot of my life and quote unquote career, large, and no one can see these air quotes, but career, um, <laughs> has been defined by my relationship with the place. Mm-hmm. Whether I want that to be the case or not, a lot of times I do want to be, but you know, to be black and have, have a relationship with a place anywhere. But I, I think for me, I could say in America it's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something in a relationship where I have to continually check in mm-hmm. and say, how do I feel today about this? Or how do I keep making the choice to love where I'm at right now? Mm-hmm. And I kind of admire Josephine Baker's checking in and making the choice to not love the place because he didn't love her. Mm-hmm. And coming back to the place and then deciding once again, this place still does not love me in a way that is adequate. <laughs> And so why would I stay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been intrigued in that, particularly in your writing, you know, because I feel like you, you're you so evocative about the place that you're from, you know, and um, you get that in a lot of um, particularly authors, um, you know, who are black. But, you know, I've also felt like for myself, you know, as more of a nomadic person, you know, like I'm from the Midwest, obviously, right. um, and from Milwaukee. But, you know, like I don't have those same sort of like memories or even like that desire to sort of like be back there so there's that interest you know in the black people who are more nomadic still and then the ones who sort of become about um revering a place that um they're from or even you know like struggling with the um whether or not they love the place that they currently are or are from yeah 
Yeah. And I, I mean, most black folks I know are nomadic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's so much of our history in the States is a history of movement and a history of migration mm-hmm. and places have been just so defined by that migration, how Chicago in certain parts of it still, it feels like a very joyfully Southern area, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like a joyfully Southern city in certain parts of it still, how Detroit is the way it is. I mean, Detroit's one of my favorite Midwest cities. You know, I often say if I ever fall out of love with Columbus, I will be living in Detroit, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Dayton, Ohio, even birthplace of funk and how migration in some ways led to that revelation. And so most of the black folks I know are not only nomadic, but have a history of being nomadic. And, you know, I'm one of the few black people I know who are where they were born. Mm. And that I think is something I think about often and have not had time to mentally unpack, but would love to one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your warmth of other sons sequel. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, thank you for being here, Hanif. We have to have you back. I mean, I feel like yeah. I could talk to you about music uh, for hours, and I miss doing that, actually. I so know. Uh, Maybe we should just write an email to MTV News and see if they'll hire us back. Just if we, if you we know, word it nicely enough, maybe they'll just, <laughs> maybe they'll do it. You know, they reboot it every other year, so yeah. probably. We can probably sneak into <laughs> one of the reboots. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks, y'all. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, Lewis, are you ready for this deep dive into the world of the Real Housewives? I am never prepared, but I am here with you, so I'll have to get into it somehow. Mansplain, Jen Shaw to me, go. All right, so last week, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star Jen Shaw was arrested for defrauding the elderly. (laughs) Truly an I care a lot moment. Wow, (laughs) timely, yes. Yeah. Remember when we gave Rosamond a Golden Globe? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and it seems she's about to trade her rented chalet for a jail cell. Let me tell you about this chalet. So okay. Jen Shaw is basically this over-the-top, wealthy, quote-unquote, successful business person who um, has eight assistants Great. and is married to a coach. The eight assistants has always been a thing that fans um, and even Andy Cohen has been like, why do you have eight assistants, girl? Mm-hmm. Because we, the Real Housewives has been on for years. And basically, this show was sort of what happens when you have had a reality sort of franchise on for so long that people are now like fans of that. And they are trying to emulate mm. what people like, you know? So Jen sort of really appeared as like this over-the-top woman who seems like she is trying to do an impersonation of what everyone thinks a real housewife should be. Got it. You know, so it's less 
natural and more she's sort of like putting on a lot um but she also seems to be crazy right uh, and she would like randomly snap at her cast members uh throw things threaten to bury them in the lake behind her house etc it kind of reminds me of how in later seasons of project runway it felt like contestants namely gay male contestants were obsessed with taking up the throne of being the funny christian siriano or being absolutely you know the cynical uh santino rice or whomever you know there's mantles to take up and they're like well why not me i'll i'll prepare some one-liners and see mm-hmm. how i do the answer was not well go ahead <laughs> except for not even to dinner with the kushner's <laughs> that's much much later yes. and the one the one line that worked out iconically for them since what 2008 right um but what's weird about that is that you know like yes you would love the crazy moments on real housewives but like as it's gone on you're like the our, our favorites on salt lake city were the people who seemed sort of normal and grounding uh-huh you know it seemed like this you, you're attracted to the people who still seem like they're not exactly sure what they signed up for and they seem real which to me feels appropriate for utah which is a city of you know wide-eyed naivete if you ask me Mm -hmm. so basically jen who has been questioned about you know like why she has so many assistants and you know like where her money comes from and is always dressed in like versace and uh gucci and any sort of designer um was arrested Tuesday, March 30th, for her alleged role in a telemarketing scheme that defrauded hundreds of victims, many elderly and working class throughout the U.S. She and her assistant, Stuart Smith, were booked for the crime. So one of the assistants who's on the show with her was also arrested for the crime was he notable among the assistants or no yeah he you we all recognized him from the show like he was the one who like drove her everywhere oh okay woof so he was pot committed to this woman and what's wild is that there have been previous real housewives crimes you know there's been Teresa who was you know jailed for mail wire and bankruptcy fraud alongside her husband Joe um she served 11 months of a 15 month sentence and she like left the show to be in prison but then has since come back to the show currently there's Tom Girardi um you know who is the estranged husband of Erica Jane who's on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills Tom is the lawyer from the um Aaron Brockovich case good lord really the real life one yes the real life the one, one played by Albert Finney yes Wow. Yeah. How did I not know that? Yeah. So I um, love Albert Finney. (laughs) He has basically been a well-respected lawyer, um, but now he like owes more than fifty-six million to former clients, creditors, and lenders, and they are accused of embezzling two million dollars from plane crash victims. Oh, noble. Yeah. So that was happening this year, though. So when I tell you that this is such a big crime that it escaped. Bravo sphere, it became national news. Like the Girardi stuff was news, but like this became national news to the point where I feel like, like you were saying earlier, like people can, if you're not a Real Housewives fan, at least I feel like you can be like, you know what? I know at what point in the evening my people I follow on the internet are going to be talking about the show when it's just airing. And then sometimes you have to put up with gays, you know, making memes. Yeah, right. You know, my whole life. Yes. This I felt like was unavoidable truly no uh i i don't want to say 
that I have nothing to contribute to Housewives conversation, but it really is just like most reality TV. Like, as you know, I am a longtime Big Brother fan and talking about how certain people are acting crazy, which is how conversations about these shows tend to be. It's just not interesting to people who are not broadcast that behavior. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't. And also the way they live their lives doesn't relate to how any of us live our lives either so there's just nothing generally speaking applicable so mm-hmm. when they finally do get arrested or something is formally insane uh there's something to latch on to i mean i still think about the michaela salahi thing where <laughs> the, the footage of them just straight up infiltrating a white house event i mean it's such a capital serious crime and their subsequent interviews on morning television were mind-boggling yeah and the fact that it was caught on camera them doing that um, which is why this is so big, too, because she apparently was tipped off and like left filming um, when they were about to go on a cast trip. Um, and then she was at home where she was apprehended, but also the FBI showed up where she had previously been and met the other cast members, right? So... What we appear to know is that the arrest may not be on camera, but the looking for her and the talking to the other cast members about her will be on camera. And it just came out a report that they'll probably be filming the rest of like her legal stuff for the rest of the second season, which is currently filming now. So like the second season was filming as this was happening. Um, so we'll get to see this documented on television. And the beauty of it is it's a bad decision for her probably, but her as someone who pled guilt, not guilty, um, wants to continue to film because one, her assets are frozen. Uh, and two, <laughs> you know, to try and clear her name. But this is a woman who is not black. Uh, she's the first Polynesian cast member, but you know, she sort of like leans into like black culture and like being black. Um, and she was wearing some like full Kim Kardashian braids and like a dark beat when she was arrested. So the mugshot is one going to be beautiful. And then two, <laughs> after the arrest, she got like a blowout and like her hairdresser like had her on Instagram talking about like um, she got a blowout for her like arraignment hearing you know and like with hashtag unarrested what unarrested spelled wrong so like this is a woman who what is clearly going to be doing a lot um as these proceedings happen and it will be so interesting to watch it unfold on tv i'm curious if the people arresting her are like law enforcement officials. Like they wouldn't sign a release, right? So they're probably going to be blurred out. So that's giving me vibes of like uh, late 90s or 2000 real world where Mm. Danny from New Orleans was dating that guy in the military and they had him out all the time. And all I could think was, this must be the hottest man who ever lived. Like the mystery kept building of who he is. So I'm ready to be attracted to FBI agents doing their job because I can't see their face. They broke up too, I think. Oh, right. Soon after. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is so weird to remember because I feel like as like a young, like gay kid who's like not seeing like a lot of representation on TV yet, except for like staying up late to watch Undressed. Um, the scenes of just like this blurred out military man, like in the living room, you know, like holding hands, you know, or like hugging or cuddling up to Danny. It's like, that's such a weird era to have experienced. Yeah. No kidding. By the way, how bad do I feel that I have not watched the new challenge with all the very old cast members? Well, it hasn't started yet. 
Oh, okay. I'm glad to hear yeah. it. No, because the, the, I just your re- current one is still um, finishing up, which um, it started out great and then got a little boring. And also, Lolo Jones is on it, and I absolutely hate watching her on TV. <laughs> I forgot Lolo Jones was the one who took a picture of herself in the back row at a Beyonce concert and people dragged her for having the worst tickets. Um, She was also on Celebrity Big Brother and she did not do well if memory serves. Yeah. Um, Speaking of this new season of The Challenge featuring age old cast members, I'm talking there are people in their 50s on this show. Trishel from the real world Las Vegas, which I have famously said did kind of ruin the real world for me where they just leaned into... This is going to be the girl's gone wild. That's what the season she had a, was. I mean, she had a pregnancy scare on the right. show. Yeah, you know, and someone um, was attacked with a fork. I I had not I had not updated my view of Trishel since that season, and she gave a wonderful interview to Kay Arthur and has such a reasonable and cool take on the whole thing, and mm. including some. Um, didn't she end up saying something terrible to Anissa in a, in a mm-hmm. future um, season of where those seasons mix? Uh, she, I thought, had a cool follow-up and just just seemed like a cool person you wanted to hang out with. And I never had that feeling of Trishel. So definitely read that. Aw, it's nice to see when people who grow up in that age of reality television like become completely different, you know? Right. Where's the um, Ashley Simpson, you know, follow-up where she's wise and old and singing the shadow and in a rasp like Rod Stewart? I mean, listen, I definitely want to see that because... Um, our our friend Sam um is like has sent us a link to um the Ashley Simpson show, which is all on YouTube. And um he's been enjoying it and I need to dive into that time capsule. Back when the songwriting of Cara Diaguardi was king. <laughs> Short but mighty era. Kara, where are you? Trying to get Platinum Hit to be made again on Bravo. Oh, I did watch that season. You know that. She's like, Andy, put it on Peacock, please. <laughs> uh, Jackie Tom would love that. Um, <laughs> That's her in. Yeah. Have you seen, um, here's us getting off topic again, but speaking of Ashley, have you seen that SNL moment recently? Where she does the little jig? I don't yeah. think that I have. I mean, it I see it every couple of years. but Truly mesmerizing just to... See a performer get like caught like that, but then absolutely have no idea what to do. Yes, like doing the jig. Doing the jig is what makes it so wild to me because I can imagine that happening to a host of other people who are you know like caught like doing their little lip sync or whatever. But they would know how to respond to it, you know, make a joke about it, something. And maybe that's why she never became a big pop star because she does not have the yes and capability that you need. To be an icon. It is very interesting because she could have, I guess, feasibly just performed the same song again. Would people have complained? Maybe half the audience would have been fooled to believing, oh, she doesn't have an album yet. It's just one song, so she can only do the one song again. I think she, if she played it straight enough, she could have gotten away with it. But as such, she did the jig, and then she just walks off stage, and then they awkwardly fade to black, if I remember correctly. Um, (laughs) I also actually prefer... Her second album to her first, if we're being honest. With oh, Boyfriend on it. And that L-O- second album L-O-V-E. is yeah. iconic. Yeah. I, I like, I, you know, I'm, I'm using the word uh, iconic um, liberally, just like Charlie XCX does. But um, <laughs> I truly do mean it. And also underrated is her third album, though, Bittersweet World, with the song Boys, produced by Pharrell, is sort of this like emo pop song that is maybe one of the best songs he's produced. And people haven't heard it because it's on a 
Ashley Simpson album that came out in 2008. <laughs> yeah. The idea of her having a third album does blow my mind, I'll be honest. But yeah. Um, I, and a fourth. I, okay, I'll listen to it. A fourth, the joint album she did with her husband, Evan Ross. Wow. Are they still together? They're still together. Okay. I, I root for them, but yeah, it is still together. very strange to me that she is related yeah. to Diana Ross now. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, well, and strange that um, Diana Ross is now by marriage um, a um, step-grandparent to Pete Wentz's child. Right. Speaking of Fallout Boy. She, <laughs> that's right. She's related to somebody named Mowgli, if I'm not Bronx yes. Mowgli. Bronx yes. Mowgli. That music dynasty, the Rosses, the Simpsons, and Fallout Boy, all connected. Come on, Downton Abbey, too. Yeah. That is the Osbournes that we need. The Osbournes reboot. The, uh, the, the Rosses. Remember when they gave Sharon Osbourne the reboot recently? Woof. Yeah. Well, you know what? Ashley Simpson will not be calling people wontons, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That was a horrible news story. Uh, a horrible news story. It also reminds you that, like, the, the worst thing about racism is that it's usually just lazy. <laughs> right. That's what you're going to call Julie Chen. It's like, where is the creativity? It's lizard brain cruelty. Yeah. Okay. There are many things you could say about Julie Chen moon vests. Right. Some, Believe me. I mean, she's on the record every week repeat, repeating the word moon vest for one. <laughs> All right. Well, Jen Shaw, you know, we'll be talking about this again um, when the season starts airing. Because that will be fascinating. I would honestly love Bravo to like shift into like a, as many people go on these shows knowing that they're criminals and thinking they're going to get away with it. It is like it it tells you why like Batman would always be fighting the same criminals, right? Like criminals are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, imagine go, imagine going on a reality television show and hiding crimes. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you're. I feel like the FBI just must. There must be some person who's on the Bravo beat at this point like you just watch it and you're like that doesn't seem right Mm -hmm. and maybe bravo should just shift to um launch a true crime show yeah like like court tv but only about bravo like court bravo or something yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or it's just a show about prosecuting rich people and their crimes a plucky fbi agent you're gonna say mariska's not on that other show what she's doing now come on (laughs) all right when we're back keep it And we're back with our favorite segment of the show and the only part of the show with the name, It's Keep It. Just Ira and Lewis today, so I guess we'll be speeding through these pretty quickly. Though I do hate the thing I'm keeping, so I guess... (laughs) I will say, when we jokingly asked for theme songs um, for the Keep It segment, like a couple weeks ago, which I don't think anyone submitted any, so fuck all of you. And we're such nice people, so what the fuck is that? Uh, So keep it to our listeners, basically. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Except for one person who was like, there's already a perfect song, and it is the Alex Newell song, Boy, You Can Keep It. I feel so stupid. Why didn't we use that? Which is a fantastic song, but now I'm sort of like, if we ever have a TV show version of Keep It, that would just have to be the thing playing as like me, you, and Aida are like walking towards the camera. Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh. And like wind blowing and like we pause and it just says, keep it. (laughs) Stay tuned. Who knows? Yeah. Um, So my keep it is to something that is now gaining a lot of traction on Twitter, which is Mm. a clip from a new and apparently real television series 
on Fox News called The Greg Gutfeld Show. Ira, have you seen what I'm talking about? Yeah, I watched this clip and woo! Uh, Woo should be the name of the show. That should be the name. It is, okay, every once in a while, you hear news of a new conservative comedy effort. It doesn't happen often because uh, they're not funny. I mean, that's why. But, uh, you know, on occasion, we'll see Mike Huckabee on his stupid show or... Um, somebody at some conservative conference will make the rounds with a couple of jokes they made just offhandedly. Don Jr. will show up at a bar drunk. and Right. Looking like Visine is not in the house. Uh, <laughs> that's what he's looking like. Well, anyway, this is a show called Gutfeld! Exclamation point. And each individual jokes from this man, who has a kind of Bill Maher-like cadence, surprise, mm-hmm. are incomprehensible. This man says, okay, the one joke he gets in, he, he makes a joke saying, now, if you can't tell your microwave from your TV, hello, Mr. President. Okay, make fun of senility. That's what, you, that's what the conservatives have, right? They have to True. zero in on Joe Biden but also, being senseless or whatever. Isn't that the audience for Fox News? Right. So <laughs> senility is a very real issue, you guys. You guys should be dealing with it head on. But afterwards, he goes... Uh, So in the joke, he mentions pizza, and he goes, Mm -hmm. and Hunter will bring the extra cheese. What the fuck does that (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Let's explore the joke area of Hunter Biden for a minute. So he's a former drug addict. Mm -hmm. He's a kind of 'er ne'er-do-well son of Joe Biden. He has a book Mm -hmm. coming out. Mm -hmm. What is extra cheese? Do they think that's drugs? I don't Mm. understand what the joke is. Mm. Maybe they're Vanderpump Rules fans, and the whole right. it's not about the pasta fans are like, oh, they're talking about cocaine, and pasta is the code word. Is cheese the Fox News code word for cocaine? Like when Sean Hannity um, is, you know, on commercial breaks, does he ask someone to bring me lines <laughs> of pizza? <laughs> bring me the cheese. I appreciate you giving these people the credit that they would not only be Bravo fans, but would have subtle and deep jargon related to franchises on the Bravo network. But Well, someone's got to watch Southern Charm. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, this Google search just turned something up. Hunter Biden apparently says he probably smoked, quote, Parmesan cheese digging for crack in carpets. Okay, but that's still not enough of a reference that I understood what he meant. The extra cheese? You don't add extra cheese to a pizza and somebody doesn't bring it anyway. So, more lazy joke construction from my favorite comedian, Greg. Oi, Gefault. <laughs> Oi, Gutfeld. Oh, Gutfeld. I can't, I don't even know that man's name. It's just, it's just like Laura Ingraham or Ingham. I'll never know. Right. There's no way of knowing, and you're cursed if you asked. <laughs> uh, but the punchlines on this show are incomprehensible, and people are laughing because they hear the cadence of a joke, mm-hmm. but they don't get to the sense of a joke yeah. and the satisfaction of a joke. And it's just incredibly awkward. And it just makes me think, like, I'm a late-night comedy writer. Like, mm-hmm. people just want to feel like they're on the same team. So it doesn't even have to make sense. Mm-hmm. It just has to be people, quote-unquote, owning the libs or, like, side-eyeing the libs, and that counts as a joke. And I have to tell you, as somebody who's like a lib, the point of the comedy is not to own conservatives. It's just to point out actual absurdity. Mm -hmm. So this is never going to work out for you. Um, But I do miss shows that just end in exclamation point. Feels very, you know... Um, remember when Ellen Cleghorn had a show called Cleghorn? It's like that. (laughs) Though actually, the show Cleghorn is probably more modern Uh, than this show. I mean... 
Remember this show used to have an exclamation point after it. And then we, we, we became a much more serious drama, so it yes. seemed inappropriate. Yes, we couldn't be like, welcome back to Keep It! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems very Nickelodeon game show. Yeah, <laughs> um, Finders, keep it! I will say that the problem with this show is that it is taking a lot of the worst comedy of the current era. You know, I, like comedy isn't to like own the conservatives, but... A lot of people who try to be funny on social media, particularly Twitter, do joke like that. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the viral tweets you'll see are from people just trying to like get one off at conservatives or like the people who are constantly in like Donald Trump's mentions, RIP, um, RIP to the Twitter account, not to him. <laughs> um, but that is the kind of comedy that like people think that is um, funny now, you know, and it's this right. brewing culture war that like the GOP is trying to restart uh you know Dan Pfeiffer was talking about this a bit in his Substack newsletter message box um but there was another article I'd read about it too you know it was just sort of like I think that they're all banking on let's just like make fun of dumb culture war things instead of like focusing on the economy right that's Mm -hmm. why they're mad at little Nas X and Cardi B you know and like talking about Dr. Seuss all the fucking time they want everyone to just be like X-Men versus the Brotherhood of Evil, you know? Like, you've got to delineate sides. And that is the only explanation for, like, opening that segment with jokes like, it's giddy as Kamala Harris laughing at kids in cages. I'm like, what the fuck does that joke mean? Where's the construction here? What? Yeah. Like, like, if you, like, Strange. Like, you're trying, like, they're, I get that they're now trying to, like, lay the kids in cages thing on the Biden administration, but it's it's not even funny. And also is the joke that he didn't get rid of the thing that you were happy about months ago when Trump was in office. Like, none of it makes sense. And also the set's ugly. Oh, my God. And also, like, people sitting around awkwardly laughing at the host. Like, they're obligated to laugh at him while he does his monologue. Yeah. Like, that's that's funny. too. <laughs> right. Ugh. It's like watching Love It or Leave It. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the groundlings, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> well, my keep it goes to this uh, interview that Kate Winslet did um, where she's talking about playing a lesbian in Ammonite, um, which I have not seen, but I understand is about, you know, digging for dinosaur bones. Yes, she, she dusts off seashells, then looks over them to see Saoirse Ronan, and the passion begins. Yeah, well, we've already had, like, sapphic dinosaur culture with Laura Dern in the original Jurassic Park. So I don't know that we needed this. <laughs> but um, in the interview, you know, she talks about, you know, playing a lesbian and talks about how, you know, she is just happy to get that story out there. But then she goes into talking about how the industry needs to be less homophobic because she knows a lot of gay men who are still in the closet. She's like, and I know a few of them, you know? Uh, and then, of course, it led to people trying to figure out online who the gay celebrities are. Uh, and of course, you know, the headlines from this interview were, had nothing to do with like the context in which she was talking about this, right? It just became, Kate Winslet knows a couple faggots. Who are they? <laughs> and the guesses are wild. Like people say, just because she's been in so many films with Leonardo DiCaprio, people suggesting Leo, have you met that man? Have you seen any footage of the man? I'm talking about any footage. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, that would be the wildest roofs truly of all time. Of all time. Right. 
So because also he is truly a hoe. Yeah. Uh, and publicly so. This man was associated with the term pussy posse. Yeah. Guys, <laughs> put down the magnifying glass. You're looking at the wrong man. Um, yeah, is someone is someone gay and being in the closet is not going to be plucking up every like 21-year-old they can find. Right. Also, Kate Winslet knows everybody. She's been in every movie, worked for every director, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I don't think there's much deduction that can be done here. Though Kate Winslet also tends to spill in interviews. Like, she mm. has since, you know, disowned her involvement with that wretched Woody Allen movie, Wonder mm. Wheel. Just like Rebecca Hall, who we talked about earlier. <gasps> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Rebecca Hall's been in a, a couple of his movies, though. I would. Uh, the, the thing I was also thinking about with regards to like who it could be, right? It's like you, you have to think about the fact that Kate Winslet is an attractive woman who's been in Hollywood for years. So it doesn't have to be someone she's worked with. She could have been at a party. She could have, you know, thought she had chemistry with an actor, right? And been like, hey, like, let's hang out. Like, let's go on a date or something. And when they do hang out, she finds out that they're gay, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's why we were bonding. You, you, you didn't want to fuck me. You wanted to actually um, paint me like one of your French girls. <laughs> <laughs> this is now a good, as good a time as ever to say the best Kate Winslet movie is Little Children. If you've not seen it, a disturbed suburban ennui, one of my favorite subjects a movie can be about. Todd Field's second movie of two. His first was In the Bedroom. Todd Field, come back to us. Also a great Best Actress year. That's when Helen Mirren won for The Queen. You had Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. Heard of it. Uh, Penelope Cruz in Volver and Judi Dench in Notes on a Scandal. Now that is the lesbian drama I want more of. <laughs> um, you know, I think I would go for the other obvious one and say... Um, Eternal Sunshine. Great, yes. I have to yes. say about Eternal Sunshine, there is no second of that movie. You can't compare it to anything. And also, someone gives Kirsten Dunst something interesting to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are good Winslet movies. Also, underrated Finding Neverland. Yes. Oh, she's so lovely in that movie. Also, Kate Winslet is a likelier and in a way better choice for the Kate Blanchett role in Notes on a Scandal. Like, wouldn't you believe her making a fuck-up mistake like that way more than you would believe Kate Blanchett, you know, screwing a student? She's too, she's too imperious. It doesn't it well, work as well with her. Yes, but then I would also believe that Kate Winslet would um, fuck Judy Dench. True, right. <laughs> so, and and call would, her a vampire. Yeah, she would have to be working that hard to get out to her, rubbing her hand. Kate would be like, okay, well, let's go. <laughs> She's like, I'm married to somebody named Ned Rock and Roll. I'll do anything. <laughs> All right, well, uh, that's our show. Thank you to Hanif for being here. Uh, and Aida, hope you feel better. Don't do this to us again. We got really off track. We needed you, damn it. Yeah. I'm saying this as if she will listen to the episode. (laughs) (laughs) She's busy. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narm Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. 
Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.